0: Hey, Voices of a Killer fans, Toby here to talk about an exciting podcast that you might like. If our journey into the minds behind the bars has captivated you, then you'll find Prison Pod equally gripping. It's a podcast that delves deep into the lives affected by incarceration, offering firsthand stories from those on both sides of the cell. Available on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, Prison Pod broadens the conversation around the impacts of jail and prison. Search for Prison Pod wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the real stories of those living a life defined by bars.
1: This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Wow.
0: Nice. Yeah.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com weight weightloss.
0: Before we begin this podcast, please be advised that the following episode contains language that some listeners may find offensive and inappropriate. The opinions expressed by the host and guests are their own and do not reflect the views of the podcast producers. Listener discretion is advised. This show is sponsored by my better help you're actually in prison for murder just a uh, simple question are you guilty or not guilty
2: just talk about it makes me feel sick to this stuff
0: and y'all, y'all left and went there
2: well actually we didn't leave I wish we would have
0: that's a major thing that you did as a, a youngster what's that feel like looking back on that
2: Uh, It took us for one person to be human enough, and I wasn't human enough at that
0: time. Do you think that somebody that has done what you've done, they don't deserve to be put to death?
2: That's a real good question.
0: You are now listening to the podcast, Voices of a Killer. I'm bringing you the stories from the perspective of the people that have taken the life of another human and their current situation thereafter in prison. You will see that although these are the folks that we have been programmed to hate, they all have something in common. They are all humans like us that admit that they made a mistake. Will you forgive them or will you condemn them? They are currently serving time for their murders and they give us an inside glimpse of what took place when they killed and their feelings on the matter now. Here are the voices of those who have killed. Just north of St. Louis, the Chain of Rocks Bridge crosses over the Mississippi River. It's named after a stretch of Rocky Rapids, the Chain of Rocks, that makes the river incredibly dangerous to navigate. The bridge itself, large and angular, connects the state of Missouri and Illinois. Although once a bustling interstate route, its sharp bend and narrow lanes led to bottlenecks in the traffic. So by 1968, the bridge was closed and was left to stand, abandoned and empty for many years. This historic bridge also carries a dark past. In 1991, it was the seat of a crime that shook the city of St. Louis. In a highly publicized trial and emotional case, four young men were linked to the rape and murder of two sisters, Julie and Robin Carey. Today, we're talking to one of those four men, Reginald Clemens. After 25 years of denying any involvement in the crime, Reginald is finally ready to come clean about what happened that April night in 1991. In this interview, he talks to us step by step through the timeline of the night. In Reginald's own words, you'll hear about the police's brutal interrogation tactics and what it's been like to spend all of his adult life waiting for his execution on death row. The Carey sisters' case has been ongoing for over a quarter of a century. Now, as Reginald Clemens takes accountability for his crime, we invite you to listen to this, the final chapter of the story. Sit back and listen closely to this 25 year old crime on this episode of Voices of a Killer. So, Reginald, you from Missouri?
2: Yes, I am. St. Louis, Missouri, North County.
0: You were born in St. Louis?
2: Yes, at uh, a Barnes-Jewish Hospital.
0: Did you have any siblings?
2: Yes. I have had six brothers and one sister.
0: Yeah. Do you have support on the outside?
2: My primary support is my mother.
0: Yeah. How old are you right now?
2: I'm 53 years old.
0: 53. So what was St. Louis like uh, whenever you were growing up in your area?
2: Well, it was uh, a lot of red line. Areas as far as the north side of St. Louis was North County was primarily white, and then you had North City, which is mainly black. Most of the metropolitan areas were were black back then, were, uh, were African American, and then the surrounding uh, counties were white, and then you had parts of the north side, west St. Louis, that were high crime, and then there was areas in south St. Louis that was high crime, but as you went further out, all of Lindbergh used to be considered a suburban area, and so it was... That's how it was back then. That was back in the 80s up to 91. I got locked up in 91. So from what I've heard, it is not the same city anymore. It's so much flipped around. Where the whites used to live is where the blacks are, and where the blacks used to live is where the whites are. So there's a lot of shifts in demographics. Then there's gangs that I've never heard of. (laughs) So... It's, it's a lot of different stuff that, that has changed. In, in the, I've been locked up for 32 years
0: now. Yeah, so I've actually interviewed a fellow that he got locked up when he was 15 or 16 years old, <laughs> and then he got out, got committed. They charged him with seven more murders while he was on parole, but he was with the Boys of Destruction. Are you familiar with them?
2: I've heard of them, he yeah, Boys of Destruction. I've heard of quite a few of them since I've been there.
0: Was that, Were you around that whenever you were growing up as a kid?
2: When I was growing up as a kid, it was, this was crazy because I would grow up, we was doing breakdancing and stuff. We had breakdancing crews. And somehow, the breakdancing crew, well, we used to get into fight sometimes with other breakdancing groups and stuff over girls and things like that. But those are just little fist fights. But somehow, Breakdancing turned into a gang affiliation, and then gang affiliation came with guns, drugs, and violence. So,
0: interesting. And you got into the drugs and violence and all that stuff?
2: No, no. But I stuck with the fist fight and breakdance. Yeah. And I'm saying I wasn't no angel. I'm saying I, I got high here and there. And I'm saying bought and sold a joint here and there, but I wasn't. I didn't buy no bales of weed. Sell yeah. pounds or anything.
0: Well, did you do hard drugs like cocaine?
2: I I tested it. I tried it out. I was more scared of it than anything to try and use it to, to, to be a cocaine user. Cause I was yeah. saying because I got a brother that's they're, they're strong out on cocaine. So seeing how he was living his life. Well, he I saying he worked at Chrysler, so he had a real good back then, Chrysler was a real good man job. That was job like, yeah, we could pay a house note the mortgage, right yeah, but I' say, but he used to struggle
0: yeah so the time that this happened, the time that this murder happened, if I was to ask somebody who was Reginald Clements at the time that this happened who would they what would they how would they describe you
2: I would describe me as uh, an, an intelligent, friendly, nice caring, protective, loyal, young man. That was an accurate description that I failed to live up to fully. Why's that? I'm saying because I participated in a, in a gang right? And I, yeah. the only thing, I don't like chalking it up to me being good. Well, one of my co-defendants code is, is who was 24 years old, and I looked up to him. And there's a part of me that's a follower. Even to this day, I kind of shy away from leadership. I don't want to minimize my own culpability and responsibility for my own actions. But I do try to understand why I did something that I'm against, in a way.
0: Reginald Clemens hasn't stepped foot in the free world in the past 30 years of his adult life. The St. Louis he knew then is very different from the one today. In 91, a little-known thing called the Internet had just been launched to the public. Breakdancing crews spread like gangs in the inner city, and St. Louis was cut and drawn by poverty and racial lines, splintering the city into small, segregated pockets. Somewhere in the north county streets of St. Louis lived 19-year-old Reginald Clemens. He came from a large family, eight kids and two loving parents who instilled strong home values in their son. As a kid, Reginald was creative and inventive. His room was full of contraptions, flickering lights and motors, and his father liked to tell people how Reginald once dismantled and reassembled his Longines watch, piece by piece. Although he dabbled in drugs, Reginald's criminal record was clean and his life was full of youth and promise. Around the same time, just west of St. Louis in Columbia, two sisters were enrolled at the University of Missouri. Julie and Robin Carey, like Reginald, were young with bright minds and futures. At 20, Julie was an aspiring writer and poet. Along with her 19-year-old sister Robin, Julie was passionate about social justice issues, and the sisters spent their spare time volunteering in the fight against AIDS or advocating for the homeless. Maybe the best way to sum up who Julie was was through her life motto, which was plastered on a poster in her bedroom, quote, who says you can't change the world, unquote. It was spring break in 91 and the two sisters were visiting cousins in St. Louis. One April night, they took their cousin, Thomas, north of the Chain of Rocks Bridge to show him a poem Julie had written in graffiti on the bridge. It was titled, Do the Right Thing, in white letters and signed Jules, with a peace sign. Early, the poem ended with the words, we've got to stop killing each other. Little did Julie know that these words would foreshadow tragedy as the Carey sisters' lives crossed with Reginald's. So Reginald, you're actually in prison for murder. Just to, uh, How old were you at the time?
2: 19.
0: 19. And how old are you yeah. now?
2: 53 now.
0: 53. What year was this?
2: It was April 4th and 5th of 1991.
0: Simple question: Are you guilty or not guilty?
2: I am guilty of participating in the crime of rape that led up to the murder.
0: Uh-huh.
2: I didn't actually commit the murder.
0: So did I hear? Did I hear you correctly? You said gang rape. Yes. So you were involved in a gang rape.
2: Unfortunately, yes.
0: Yeah. Who is the victim in your case?
2: Robin and Julie Carey, they were sisters, and they were hanging out on a bridge with their cousin, Thomas Cummins. He's their cousin. He was visiting from out of town,
0: yeah. and
2: they were, hang- they were hanging out on a bridge.
0: And who were you with?
2: I was with my friends. Well, I felt like they were my friends. Somebody I was hanging with um, Marlon Gray, Antonio Richardson, and Daniel Winfrey.
0: Yeah, and what what was the evening like for you guys? Are y'all getting drunk? Are y'all doing getting dr- doing drugs or what?
2: Well, we we was getting drunk and we tried and we smoked some weed earlier and we tried to smoke a uh, joint up there on the bridge, but it had dried out all the way. It yeah. had not fully cured. So,
0: is that when y'all noticed the the girls there?
2: As we were leaving, yeah.
0: Did y'all approach yeah. them?
2: Yeah, we had a friendly, casual conversation with him.
0: Y'all walked up to him and just had a conversation for a while with just the two girls and the male? Yeah. And how long did y'all talk to them?
2: about 15, 20
0: minutes. Yeah, what was the discussion like? Y'all just kind of BSing about nothing?
2: Well, we talked about the bridge and how I uh, had been in the movie, the end of the movie, Escape from New York. Oh, okay. and talked about the other time, the times that we had hung out up there. Yeah. And they talked about the times that they had hung out up there and said that they had written a poem on the bridge, spray-painted a poem on the bridge called Do the Right Thing.
0: Do the Right Thing. Interesting. So did you and your, your friends at with you, did y'all ever make a pass at the girls?
2: Not that I could remember, no.
0: No. And did y'all part ways?
2: Oh, yeah. Where did y'all go? We walked, and we was leaving the bridge, and they had, because they were coming onto the bridge, we had decided that we was gonna leave and go over to another sightseeing view spot over in Alden, Illinois, called The Chair. And there's a hiking trail that goes up to the top of this cliff face, Mm -hmm. and there's a rock formation up there. It looks like a Chair, where it's a good, a nice view of the river. It's another good viewing spot of the river.
0: And y'all left and went there?
2: Well, actually, we didn't leave, which I wish we would have.
0: On the same evening that Julie and Robin Carey had headed to the bridge, Reginald was hanging out with three of his friends. His cousin, Antonio Richardson, just 16, was already deep into drugs and crime. Daniel Winfrey, 15 years old, was an acquaintance that Reginald had met for the first time that day. And the third member was Marlon Gray, at 25, tall and confident. Marlon was the oldest of the four, and kind of the ringleader of the small group. He was charismatic and charming, somebody who a young Reginald could look up to and follow. The four men spent the evening drinking and watching a Blues hockey game. After the game ended, they took two separate cars to hang out at the Chain of Rocks Bridge along the Mississippi River. At 11 p.m. they pulled up, climbed through a hole in the fence over a pile of rocks, and slipped down into the entrance of the abandoned bridge. With no municipal lights, the bridge was pitch black, and only a long metal flashlight lit their path as they walked towards the Illinois end. Only when they turned back towards the car did they stumble across the Carey sisters and Thomas Cummins. For 15 minutes, the two groups talked casually, They discussed how the bridge had featured in the movie Escape from New York and about how the manholes hid a path down to the piers. One of the Carey sisters gave Daniel a cigarette. Then they parted ways. The Carey sisters towards the Illinois end, Reginald and the others towards the Missouri end. But to Reginald's regret, the group didn't get into the cars and they didn't drive away.
2: Made the suggestion that we to, to attack them.
0: How'd they phrase that? Let's go rape them. Let's go get you know what we want. What did they? Oh,
2: let's go. I think they said let's go rape them. I think someone made the suggestion of going back and raping them, and somebody else said the suggestion was made to go back and rob them.
0: And it's just you and two other guys.
2: It's, it's me and three other guys.
0: Three other guys. How long did that discussion last to to to, sit, to determine whether that's what really y'all were going to do?
2: Yeah, how long did? That was less than two minutes. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even put it at a minute. It was like uh, a spur of the moment decision.
0: Yeah, once it was finalized, it all just turned around and then walked back towards the girls.
2: Yeah. And and that's when the uh, the oldest guy, uh, Marlon Gray, he he started handing out uh, condoms.
0: He started and handing out condoms. To so you guys, he handed them out. Yeah. Nick,
2: uh, any kind of
0: self explain it to her. Sure. I have a question for you. Did any of y'all have weapons on you? No. No weapons at all? No. Nope. Whenever y'all uh, went up to them, did they uh, see y'all coming and turn around and, and were, they were like, you know, why are y'all coming back or anything?
2: No. When we approached them and started talking to him, we started talking to them and having a friendly conversation again.
0: Oh, okay. Did were they? Did they seem suspicious?
2: The atmosphere was a little bit uneasy. Yeah, they they could kind of sense it.
0: What did the guy do? Where was he at? Their friend?
2: Their cousin? He was walking along with them. And when we got to, just before we got to the halfway point of the bridge, he put his arm around the cousin and told him, come here for a second, and walked him away from the girls.
0: Oh, uh, somebody walked him away from the girls.
2: Yeah, him come, come here for a sec. I don't know exactly what he said to him to separate him from him, but he said something to him. And
0: so, who made the first move on the girls or that guy? What happened? What was the next step?
2: Well, he grabbed the guy and put him on the ground, and he was pretty. I'm saying my co defendant who was 24 years old, he stood at about six four, probably weighed probably 240 pounds
0: he forced him down to the ground
2: oh yeah he just spun him around and laid him on the ground and, and told him to stay down
0: did the girl what were the girl's reaction when they saw y'all do that to him
2: they tried to run and that's when the two youngsters the younger guys one of them was 15 the other one was 16 he caught him yeah
0: were they punching him whenever yeah. they caught him or were they fighting back
2: uh, well, they uh, grabbed him and held him down and I think Antonio punched, was punching on one of the girls.
0: Yeah. Did they take their clothes off and rape them?
2: Yeah. I was watching over the guy at the time. You're watching and Marlon had went and helped Tony rape the first girl then, which was Robin, and then went and raped the second girl.
0: Were the girls pleading with y'all?
2: They were at first. And they stopped? Yeah. Did you do it? And. Yeah. Yep. Everybody. I have Ray Robin book and. I'm saying, I. I, Yeah.
0: How does that make you feel now knowing that you did that? I hate it. You hate it? Yeah. Did you think you were going to hate it whenever you were doing it? Or how did you feel whenever you were doing it?
2: While I was doing it, I. I'm doing it just because it's just, uh, to fit in, and doing it because it's what was happening at the moment. And uh, to this day, I wrestle with understanding how, or why, and it took me a long time to forgive myself. But I don't—I still don't fully understand. But one thing I do know for absolutely certain is that I'll never do anything like that again. Now, it's something that I hate. It, it, just talk about it makes me feel sick to the stomach.
0: It's hard to keep track of exactly who did what that April night. Later testimonies would conflict with each other, leaving inconsistencies and open questions about the course of events. After the two groups parted the first time, Reginald and the others decided to turn back and rob the girls. According to Antonio, it was Reginald who initiated the idea of robbing the girls. Daniel Winfrey would later claim he was intimidated by the others into taking part. And in Reginald's account, Marlon Gray handed out condoms as the men walked back up the bridge, essentially turning what could have been just a robbery into a brutal gang rape. The details are graphic and hard to hear. Thomas Cummins was pinned down by the tall figure of Marlon Gray. The clothing of the Kerry girls was ripped off. Then, the men took turns raping Julie and Robin Carey as they screamed, pleading for help. A casual chance meeting on an old bridge had descended into senseless, abhorrent violence, and Reginald, caught up in the peer pressure of this moment around his friends, had abandoned the values he stood by. So what did y'all do afterwards?
2: Well, after they were raped, Thomas Cummins, he was robbed. I don't know who robbed him. I think it might have been Tony. It was either Tony or Danny. I don't know. Rob Thomas Cummins, but I know that me and Tony got into an argument about whether they live or die, because he said something about killing, that they said, we got to kill him. And I'm like, what? No.
0: So hold on a second. That's when I,
2: and that's when I snapped out of this.
0: Well, I want to ask you, whenever y'all were arguing about that, did the victims hear y'all talking about that? Yeah. Were they pleading and saying, you know, whenever they heard that, were they pleading with you?
2: Well, only the guy heard it. The, I don't think the girls heard us argue about them. But not this or whatever.
0: Yeah, so Reginald, you and the other guy were talking about Basically, killing the witnesses, and you were pleading with them not to do that, or, or were you saying you should?
2: No, I was telling them no, but it not doing that, and that was going to So,
0: did you pretty much lose the vote? Did the other guys know? No, we have to do this.
2: No, the other two guys had already left the bridge by that time.
0: Oh, they ran off.
2: Yeah, I don't know the reason why it trickled off that way. Well, no, I, Well, after he got to talk, it's, that's, I remember now, after he got to uh, talk about, let's kill him, that we need to kill him and everything. I didn't know why he had started saying that. Later on, I found out because he realized, seeing that, the guy had a badge in his pocket. And that's why he decided, that's why he flipped and was talking about killing him. So but at the time, I didn't know what it was, yeah. but when he started saying that, that's what snapped me out of going along with all this bull crap, going along with what all was going on, because I'm like, no.
0: What did you do? Did you run off, or did you stay around him?
2: No, I told him, no, we're not going to kill him, and then I told Marlon Gray had already left, so I told Daniel Winfrey, so to who, go get more So who's holding? And the girls
0: aren't getting back up and running away, or are they hurt too bad?
2: I think they probably hurt too bad.
0: Wow, so y'all hurt them pretty bad right there?
2: I, I, they didn't try to run away at that point. Okay. So, yeah, I, it is hurt too bad to resist anything.
0: What happened next?
2: So I, so I told them they was going to put them up under the bridge without their clothes on, so they couldn't follow us. That was my logic at the time.
0: They were still alive at this point, and y'all took them underneath the bridge? Is that what you said?
2: Yeah. When we put them up under the bridge, laid them down on the bridge, and left. And we were, we were supposed to be... Hold on. Daniel Daniel Winfrey. Yeah.
0: Hold on a second. When you put them underneath the bridge, are they talking to you or conscious?
2: I didn't get down up under the bridge at that time.
0: Do you know if they were still alive at this point?
2: Yeah, they were still alive.
0: But you didn't help them put them underneath the bridge?
2: Yeah. Because there's a there's a platform right there. We laid them on the platform.
0: So did you walk them? Did they get up and walk over there, and then you set them down, or y'all have to drag them over there, or what? Yeah. No, we walked them over. And, okay, so they're not talking to you or anything. No. And then what happened?
2: And then put them up under the bridge and laid them down on this platform that was under the bridge and started leaving. Yeah. And Daniel Winfrey had already left because when we were putting the girls up of the bridge, I was just trying to get everybody to leave. Because I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that it's gone too far. And it, like I said, that's when so I started talking about killing somebody. That's what sat me out of whatever stupid mind thought process I was in or whatever.
0: And then what happened?
2: Wherever my head was at, that snapped me out of
0: it. When you say snapped you out of it, do you mean now you're like jumping back over to where you're going to call the police and stuff?
2: Well, where I don't want to continue to be a part of this.
0: Okay. So what, ha- what was the next step then after that? Y'all put them underneath the bridge, laid them up underneath there? Yeah. And then you were the last one there?
2: No. It was me and Tony were the last ones there.
0: Okay. And what happened next?
2: And we started running the leave, and that's when Tony turned around and went back.
0: Tony went back and did he go over there and kill them?
2: Yes. He lined them up and pushed the two girls from behind and then told the guy to jump.
0: Oh, he shoved them off of a bridge? Yeah. And what what was below the bridge? Water or? Water. Was it a very far distance?
2: Yeah, it's a. It's high enough to try to knock the wind out of.
0: So did you watch him push him?
2: Yeah, I saw it when I climbed up under the bridge. Right when I got up, climbed up under the bridge, I saw him push, pushing the girls.
0: Did you push any of them? No. The four men had raped the Carey sisters and robbed their cousin. Now they were left with three potential witnesses. What should be done with them? Of course, it was dark and there was a good chance that the three couldn't see any of their faces, but Antonio found a firefighter badge in Thomas's wallet and panicked, thinking Thomas was a police officer. He fought with Reginald about whether or not to kill and silence them or let them go and risk being caught. Eventually, Antonio and Reginald forced the three through a manhole on the bridge which led down to a substructure. They were lined up along the pier that lay over the dark, swirling water of the mighty Mississippi River beneath them. Then, the Carey sisters, naked and bruised, were pushed into the river. Thomas was forced to jump. All three took a 70-foot fall into the icy, rough rapids of the Mississippi below. This part of the case has been subject to a lot of debate over the years. Who exactly pushed the girls off the bridge, sending them to their deaths? According to Reginald, the culprit was 16-year-old Antonio. Reginald totally objected to the idea of killing them. By that time, Reginald had snapped back to reality and he refused to cross the boundary into becoming a killer. In this story, Reginald was an accomplice to murder, not a killer himself. But Reginald also recognizes today that his hands are not clean. He did nothing to stop Antonio as he watched him push the girls and Thomas off the pier. More on that after the break.
1: This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else conversations that actually help you get to know each other imagine that get who gets you
3: on eHarmony sign up today how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey everyone, Toby here. As we step into 2024, I've been reflecting on what aspects of my life and myself I want to keep constant. Instead of the usual new year, new you mindset, I'm focusing on new year, same awesome me. You know, it's not always about radical changes. Sometimes it's about building on the good things we've already started. For instance, I finally got a handle on organizing my workspace where I can record this podcast. And now I'm looking to bring that same order to other areas of my life. Therapy, I believe, plays a key role in recognizing and reinforcing our strengths, helping us make sustainable changes without the need for extreme resolutions. Reflecting on my own journey, I've come to understand the importance of self-awareness and accountability. At 36, I faced a significant turning point in my life, one that forced me to confront the consequences of my actions. It took me a while to fully grasp the impact of my behavior and its negative effects. I've learned that understanding and growth comes from confronting our actions and their effects on others. Therapy, in this sense, isn't just for overcoming big traumas, it's about gaining insights into our behaviors and learning how to make better choices. It's about transforming ourselves into better versions of who we are for those of you considering therapy i recommend checking out better help what's great about it is that it's entirely online which means it's flexible and tailored to fit into your busy schedule you just fill out a quick questionnaire get matched with a licensed therapist and the best part you can switch therapists anytime without extra charges if you feel the need for change so let's celebrate the progress we made and keep building on it. Visit BetterHelp.com VOK today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash VOK. You can also click on the link in the show notes below. Join me in making meaningful changes that stick. What was that like watching that, somebody being pushed to their death? Not just one person, but three. Uh,
2: there's something that's locked in my head that I try not to think about, but I do.
0: Do you ever have nightmares over it?
2: I, I used to for like about, I said about good 12, 15 years afterwards.
0: Whenever he pushed those victims off the bridge, did they were they pleading with y'all?
2: Yeah, they were pleading from the beginning. But when he pushed them, they didn't know they were about to be pushed. I didn't think they knew that they was about to be pushed. I think they were in shock at that
0: point. Did y'all watch them in the water and to check to see what happened, or did y'all just push and leave? Did y'all check to make sure that they had died?
2: Well, after the guy had jumped, I didn't even wait to see him hit the water. After he jumped by, that's not enough. That's that climbed
0: up, where, where did you go? Did you get in the car did you get in the car with the same guy that was pushing him?
2: Yeah, he was riding with me and the other two guys was riding they in a separate car.
0: Whenever you got in the car with this guy, did y'all talk about what just happened?
2: Not really. We said we was going over to Alton and drove a window over to that to where we were going in the first place where we should have went.
0: So y'all went and hung out somewhere else? Yeah. It's almost like you just picked up right where you left off. What was the discussion like when you got to this next place?
2: It was talking about that nobody should ever bring this up and talk about it again.
0: Right. So y'all had a pretty good discussion about what not to say and and all that stuff. After y'all were done with that discussion, where did y'all go?
2: They went to Wentzville and then we drove drove back to St. Louis.
0: How long was it after that happened that day? Did you uh, hear it in the news or get contacted by the police or anything? Or hear it from your friends? To discuss that discuss it again? It happened on
2: a Thursday night, Friday, early hours of Friday morning, and the police came and arrested me. Well, it came to pick me up for questioning on Sunday.
0: So from Thursday to Sunday, you were free. What was it like being that, that time period? What did you do? What were you thinking?
2: I was just I was trying to figure out what should I do. And I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I didn't know what should I do uh, if I should call police or if I should just stay quiet, not say anything. So,
0: did you if, tell anybody?
2: That's when, no. Well, the next morning I seen the fridge, Chainwax fridge, on the front page of the newspaper.
0: Oh, you did see it on the uh, front page of the newspaper.
2: Yeah, when I seen it on the front page of the I didn't even need to read the article or
0: anything. But did you read the whole article? No. You just, you, you wanted to kind of not think about it? You, did, you just saw it and uh, carried yeah. on?
2: Right. I never thought about that to now, but yeah, I, 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 I saw it and I didn't want to think about
0: it. Minutes after the incident, Reginald and his friends left the Chain of Rocks Bridge. Stopping at a gas station for food and cigarettes, they drove up to an observation cliff known as The Chair. As they overlooked the same dark Mississippi where the Carey sisters had just drowned, the four men promised not to speak about the night ever again. But if Reginald and the others thought that they'd silenced the witnesses, they were wrong. Thomas Cummings hadn't drowned. Let's wind back briefly to the moment when Thomas jumped off the pier. He'd plunge into rough waters and, fighting the current, caught sight of Julie. His cousin grabbed hold of him, but they were dragged below the water and when Thomas resurfaced, Julie didn't reappear. Cummins swam to a steep riverbank near a wooded area a few miles down from the bridge. In the early hours of the morning, Thomas, covered in mud and silt, flagged down a truck and was taken to a police station. Initially, Thomas Cummins was an immediate suspect. Although Thomas told them the full story, police believed it was a cover-up. Police found it suspicious that he had survived a 70-foot fall without major injuries. They had theorized that Julie had resisted her cousin's advances and fallen off the bridge, with Robin jumping in after her. To add to the police's suspicion, Thomas then failed a polygraph test. This was evidence enough for the police, and they arrested Thomas for the murder of his cousins. Perhaps that's where the story would have ended, with a wrongful conviction. The police followed a trail of breadcrumbs down another line of inquiry, and this led them to knock on Reginald's front door. So whenever the cops came and they, did they barge in and arrest you or they just knocked and said, Hey, we want to talk to you.
2: They, yeah. They just said they want to talk to me because I wasn't under arrest right?
0: Yeah. Whenever you say, but whenever you, they came there, you knew what was up. Did your heart kind of drop on Yeah. Them?
2: I already knew. I think I was kind of numb a little bit.
0: Yeah.
2: I don't know. I, I, I don't really think I was doing too much feeling or anything.
0: Yeah. Did you ride with them to the station? Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. What was that car ride? Well, like? Did y'all talk about anything? Because I'm sure they probably wanted to wait till you got in there, right?
2: they, they told me don't talk to, don't say anything yeah. or talk until we get to the station.
0: Yep, yep. Whenever you did get in there, did you uh, confess, or did they ask you where were you this night, or what happened?
2: Well, they asked me and uh, they questioned me and everything, and I told about us going to the bridge and talking to the girls and their cousin. Robin and Julie Carey and Thomas Cummins.
0: Yeah, let me stop you right there. Whenever you and the your buddies talked about not talking about this, did y'all agree that if y'all were ever questioned, did y'all come up with a scenario what to say if you were ever questioned? No. So you did admit that you were underneath the bridge, and that was not discussed prior to say, hey, we admit that we were at the bridge, but we don't know nothing about these people, or y'all didn't come up with any kind of plan like that, but you decided to say that, yeah, we were no. at the bridge?
2: yeah, I, yeah I, I told them that we were at the bridge and then we decided to leave okay and they said while we when we was leaving we talked to some people yeah and then after we talked to them we left
0: did the detectives let you go after you told them that
2: no they told me that they know what happened they know I had something to do with what happened to them girls oh, and, and they, that's when they started beating me, and, uh, beating me into confession
0: physically beating you <laughs> Yeah. How did they do that?
2: They started with them slapping me in the back of the head. And then other detectives slammed my head against the wall, pulled my chair against the wall, and slammed my head against the wall and had me sitting on my hands.
0: Were you fighting back when they were doing that, or were you kind of scared of
2: them? I was scared to fight back. And they had me me sitting on my hands. They told me to sit on my hands before they started slamming my head against the wall.
0: How long did they get physical with you to confess?
2: I don't really know how long they were, it's got physical with me, but it's probably it's so long ago, but it's probably about a good 30 minutes, 45 minutes
0: or so. And you finally told the truth? Yeah. After you told them, did they stop getting physical with you? Uh, yeah. Did you feel a kind of a relief to be able to tell them what really happened?
2: I... Was, I cried like a baby. I just, I couldn't quit crying the whole time I'd tell them about it.
0: How did they know to go to you?
2: Well, they found a flashlight that we had lost on the bridge. And the flashlight ended up leading them to Tony, Antonio. And Antonio Richardson told them who I was and where I lived. At At the time, they had to release him because he was a juvenile. They took him in for questioning to obtain information from him without any parent or guardian present or an attorney. So I they got information from them, they had to release them.
0: Gotcha. And then they got your name and went to you? Right. Whenever you, they finally got the confession out of you and you're basically put in jail, did you have a bond or was there no bond?
2: The first time around, there was no bond. There was a bond for 250000
0: What do you think about that day? That's a long time ago. You were a young adult, and now you're a, a mature adult. What's, what does that feel like to look back on your younger self and, and know that you went through all that? That's a pretty... I mean, the rape is in itself was really difficult for me to hear. I can't lie, I was cringing the whole time. And then uh, trying to imagine what it would, that would be like and then to lead to the whole death, to top it off, that's a major thing that you did as a, a youngster. What's that feel like looking back on that?
2: It feels horrible. It feels stupid and confused. Looking back, I'm saying, I look at all the damage that I've done to people in my family. I realize the damage that I've done to the victim's family. And all it took was, I I, had a thing that eats at me is, all it took was somebody to say something before the attacks. All it took was for me to say, no, we're not going to go back. Uh, It took us for me to just keep going and not go back with them. Uh, It took us for one person to be human enough, and I wasn't human enough at that time.
0: In the end, it was a long metal flashlight that incriminated Reginald. Left on the bridge on the night of the murders, the flashlight was traced back to Antonio. And when the 16-year-old was taken into custody, he named Daniel, Marlon, and Reginald. By the 7th of April, police had rounded up the four young men and pieced together the story. Both Antonio and Daniel confessed the full chain of events, Daniel taking a plea deal to testify against the others. The older two, Marlon and Reginald, denied involvement, but both were beaten brutally into confessing that they'd raped the two women. Reginald ended up in a hospital because of his injuries. At the end of the interrogation, police were left with four stories that were consistent with what Thomas had told them. Thomas was cleared and released, and the four men awaited their day in court. Halfway down the Chain of Rocks Bridge is a state border. The west half of the bridge falls in Missouri and the east half in Illinois. That detail mattered considerably in the lead-up to Reginald's trial. Prosecutors argued that the Carey girls were pushed on the Missouri side of the bridge, which meant that Reginald would be tried in Missouri. Today, Missouri allows the death penalty, while Illinois does not. And even in 1993, Reginald's lawyer believed that a Missouri trial would be unfavorable towards Reginald. The prosecution sharpened their case, the jury was assembled, and Reginald prepared to face a Missouri courtroom, knowing that a death penalty sentence was on the table. Yeah, whenever you went to trial, did you plead guilty?
2: No, I took it all the way to trial, and I didn't testify at trial.
0: So you decided that even though you confessed to the police, that you were going to try to say that you didn't do anything?
2: I, I, I never did take the stand because I didn't want to get on the stand in line.
0: Right. Your you're not guilty plea was basically trying to say that you had no involvement whatsoever?
2: Right. I, I I lie by omission.
0: What did they sentence you to? I got sentenced to death.
2: And I had an execution schedule on June 17th of uh, 2009. And on June 5th, I got blessed by God to get a stay of execution.
0: Is that stay permanent? Or is it? was it just a... When the, I mean, kind of key me on on stay. I want to make sure I understand this, and I'm pretty sure it is. Well,
2: a stay of execution uh, halts the execution. And I said I got blessed by God because a bird came and sat with me all day that day. And I didn't know why at the time, but at 445 that afternoon on June 5th, I got a stay of execution with me. It halted the proceedings of a hostile execution on June, that was scheduled for June 17th. And then an uh, order was, a month later, an order was issued to open and review my whole case. And my case got thrown out in 2015 based on Polish brutality of all things. And I say that because Polish brutality is hard to prove even if you have a video of Polish brutality. So that's where I, I know I'm blessed By the mercy of God.
0: Yeah. Did your uh, co-defendants, did they go to trial as well?
2: Yes. Marlon Gray and Antonio Richardson went to trial as well.
0: So what did they get? Oh, they got a death penalty.
2: And Daniel Winfrey, he testified on behalf of the state for a 30-year deal.
0: Gotcha. And do you feel like the guy that testified for the state, did he do as much as anybody else? No, not really. No. Okay. So, is the other, the co-defendant that got the death penalty, is he in the same prison as you, or is he in licking, or what?
2: Well, Antonio Richardson, he got taken off a death row based on a juvenile law.
0: Gotcha. He was the one that was 15 at the time?
2: Yes. And Marlon Gray, ended up he, he got executed on October 26, 2004.
0: How much of a role do you think he played in all of it?
2: Well, he, he was a twenty-four-year-old. He was the one that was—he was the one that was, uh, that was in charge.
0: Yeah, is he the one that also pushed him off the bridge?
2: No, no, he wasn't on the bridge at the time that, that they were pushed off.
0: What happened to the one that pushed him off the bridge? He
2: was a juvenile at the time, so he ended up getting taken off a of death row under the juvenile law.
0: Yeah, is there a chance that you can be put back on death row?
2: Um. No, no. After my case got vacated and thrown out in 2015, the prosecutor reissued charges, and the try and a trial never did get scheduled. But I took the opportunity to take responsibility for my role in the crime and play it out to second degree murder.
0: Reginald's case had been marred by years of legal battles. Although he confessed to participating in rape to police in 1991, from then on, Reginald denied any involvement in the crime. At his trial, he pled innocent and for 25 long years, he maintained that innocence vehemently, even when he was condemned to death by the jury. In fact, Reginald professed his innocence so strongly that he received a swell of community support. High-profile advocacy groups like the NAACP and Amnesty International fought for his innocence. And actor Danny Glover spoke out in support of Reginald. In 2005, the Justice for Reggie campaign was launched with a single mission: to free Reginald from prison. As people looked closer at Reginald's case, they found a host of police misconduct. This case seemed to exemplify all of the problems that exist within the American criminal justice system. Reginald was brutally beaten into a confession by police. Prosecutors lacked any physical evidence to tie Reginald directly to the crime, and the prosecution stacked the jury along racial lines so that it was composed of 80% white jurors who might be predisposed against a black man. All the efforts of advocacy groups seemed to work. Just 12 days before Reginald's execution date, as he sat in the Bonterre prison where the execution chamber is, Reginald received temporary stay of execution. It was a lifeline. A month later, a special master was appointed to Reginald's case and brought the police brutality to light. In 2015, the Missouri Supreme Court had to discard Reginald's confession because it was coerced, and they ended up throwing out Reginald's conviction entirely. After 24 years on death row, Reginald's life was spared. Now that he was freed from the death sentence, Reginald was ready to admit the truth about his actions on that night in April 1991. More on that after the break. Whenever you were on death row, did you uh, think about death a lot? Uh, yes. Did you think about the act of dying and death or both or, or what? Yeah, I, very much so. Yeah, and I, t- tell me if this is true or not, because uh, believe it or not, I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of killers and some of them that are housed with death row inmates and I've been told that being on death row, that some people, that the thought of that, the thought of someone having a death date and somebody else is going to kill them in a certain way, you could kind of go crazy thinking about it. Is that kind of something that you've been through?
2: Fortunately, my loving mother visited me every week that I was on death row. And I'm saying my faith and God. It has helped me hold it together. But I have seen some people straight lose it, where whatever humanity they had, I'm saying it's the stress of possibly being executed and being on death row for an extended period of time at a certain point. It, I person kind of reconciles to go ahead and be executed instead of continuing to be under that pressure.
0: Was suicide ever an option?
2: No. That is something that I don't never let be an option. I'm saying, as the thought I ever crossed my mind, I'm saying I'm, I'm a thinking, feeling human being. Yeah, the thought crossed my mind, but it's definitely not an option. I'm far from suicidal. Mm. Because suicide is an extremely selfish act. Because mm. somebody in this world loves you. And that's who's going to have to live with my pain. I always thought that way about death penalty that it punishes the family of the condemned mm. more so than the condemned because my execution will only last, the procedure itself will last 15 minutes max according to the protocol. But after those 15 minutes, my family had to live with it. My family still has to live with what I've done. And I've apologized to my family.
0: Have you ever gotten any yeah. hate, mail from the, hate mail from the victims or anything or the public or anything?
2: I ended up locked up with one of the victim's family members. And he overheard me take a responsibility for, my, for the crime, for my role, and everything. And he found it in his heart to forgive me, which meant everything.
0: Did he approach you on that matter?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was that like?
2: That was weird.
0: You already knew that this was a family member?
2: I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. Somebody approached me and told me that a, fa- a member of the victim's family is here and they urge you taking responsibility for your role in the crime. And they said they're working on forgiving you, but give them time. They'll approach you when they're ready. And I respected that. I didn't try to find out who he was or anything. And if he saw fit to to do me harm at that time. I felt like he had the right to. I uh, thank God that he had in his heart to forgive me because that helped me heal a little bit and reclaim some of my humanity and help me to try and give back and help me to forgive other people.
0: Do you think that somebody that has done what you've done, they don't deserve to be put to death?
2: That's a real good question. Um
0: And I think the best way for us to look at that because, you know, I think this is what we all do is it's, you know, what if this would have happened to your, you know, loved one? You know? Somebody that you cared about?
2: Personally, I'm against the death penalty no matter what. And there's a lot of reasons why I feel that way. What's the main reason? What you say is for do a person deserve to be executed? I, I, did say that if he did see fit to do me harm, he had been well within his rights. But I don't think the state should be executing people. That's the best way I think I could possibly answer that.
0: Debates over the death penalty have been waged constantly in the U.S. Currently, execution is an available form of punishment in 27 of the U.S. states. But not everybody who is sentenced to death is guilty. Nationwide, 130 people have been freed from death row. 20 in Missouri cleared of their crimes, and African Americans make up more than 40% of those on death row. In an interview, Reginald once compared death row to quote unquote, it's like somebody pointing a gun to your head every day and telling you that I'm going to kill you someday. I just haven't decided when. Should the state have the right to take somebody's life to Reginald That's an ethical line that should never be crossed. And strangely enough, Reginald shares this belief with one of the victims of his case. Julie Carey was a member of Amnesty International and during her brief life, she opposed the death penalty. Three weeks after she was pushed off the bridge, Julie's body was found 150 miles downriver near Carothersville, Missouri. To this day, Robin Carey's body has never been recovered. The last 32 years have been excruciating for the Carey sisters family as they were left with unanswered questions, imagining the horrors that the two girls went through in their final moments of their lives. But in December of 2017, the family got a small slice of closure when Reginald finally publicly admitted to his guilt in the crime. He admits responsibility for both the rapes and being an accomplice to the murder, as he wasn't able to stop the girls being pushed. Finally coming clean, Reginald had also apologized to Jenny Carey, the long-suffering victim's mother, saying, quote, unquote, I'm sorry, Mrs. Carey, for all I've put you through. When Reginald committed his crime, he was 19. Now he's 52. In the final chapter of the story, Reginald Clemens has another opportunity to find peace with his past and make amends for his future. So Reginald, looking back, looking back on the moment that you guys decide, that moment that y'all had actually walked away and we were, were discussing, going back, that moment that you actually triggered into action, looking back at that moment, what would you say to somebody that was, you know that's 15 years old, 19, 24, all hanging out, a group like that, and there's this moment. What was that moment that made that happen? that somebody else can know and to look for. or You know what I mean?
2: That is a time for you to take courage because you will hate yourself for a long time. You're here to change your life for the rest of your life. So if you find yourself in a stolen car, get out. If you find yourself where some people walk around with a gun that they know, you know, and they know that they're not supposed to have, Excuse yourself from the situation. Uh, find a way to tell them. Find the courage to tell them what they're doing is wrong. Because sometimes, just telling somebody that at that moment, just snap them out of what they know is wrong, and they and their humanity and everything. Sometimes, it, it all situations take is for somebody to speak up and say what makes sense. And that
0: helps. Are you ever in contact with your uh, co-defendants?
2: I have been because we were locked up together, but I haven't been in contact with Daniel Winfrey. But I do understand why Daniel Winfrey testified uh, for the state because I'm saying it, it was the only right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Are they all remorseful? Do you know if they are?
2: I don't know. I think... I'd like to believe that Marlon Gray was remorseful, but he didn't want to say it publicly because there was a lot of publicity in the case. And I'd like to think that Antonio Richardson is remorseful because I'd hate to think that somebody could do something as horrible as what we did and not feel sorry for what
0: they done. It's definitely a pretty difficult story to hear. I'd probably say one of the worst I've heard so far. I am happy to hear that you're remorseful about it and that... And I can tell that you really are. It sounds like you're pretty happy not to be executed. Uh, honestly, I don't... I go back to the saying that, you know, of course, if somebody hurt one of my loved ones, I'd want them dead, but obviously there's also a lot of people that are executed that have been executed and they might have been innocent, so... Uh,
2: that's, and that's why I say, God, I was blessed by God because they're innocent. I know that there's innocent people that were executed. I'm saying Larry Griffin is a person that was clearly innocent. The person that was shot with the person that was killed said that Larry Griffin didn't do it. But the state executed Larry Griffin because he wouldn't give them information. And this is documented. So if he got executed under those circumstances, and I didn't get executed based on Polish brutality, and that's where I I owe a great debt. And I, I try to strive for redemption. And I was saying, and help where I
0: can. What's your next step in life now in prison? Because it's not like you're getting out, but you're going to live the rest of your life in prison now. So what is that journey going to be like?
2: Well, um, right now, I'm working in this rehabilitation program called Reentry and help people who already have outdates on their way home prepare to go home and, and prepare to have a plan uh, called Reentry 2030, and it's supported by the governor of Missouri, Mike Parson, and the director of the Department of Corrections and Precite. And I feel like it's, it's an opportunity for me to help with crime reduction. Help stop a person from going out there and committing crime like I should have did in the first place.
0: Do you think it helps to you know talk to other inmates like that? Or you think that uh, you know it's, they're criminals that can't, you know, get over it.
2: I believe it helps. and yeah, I've seen it help. Huh? I've seen, the, the for those that commit to the program, I've seen the
0: change. Well, Reginald, I appreciate you yeah. reaching out to me, man. It's, it's, it was a good interview. Lots of serious stuff going on. It's crazy that you're. I'm talking to somebody that was once, you know, going to be put to death by the state of Missouri. You know, crazy stuff out there going on, but uh, I'm glad you're remorseful and I'm glad the world gets to hear that you're remorseful as well. So people are going to at least get to hear that, you know, you do admit that it was horrible and you're sorry for that. So that's a good thing. Okay. So appreciate it, man. And take it easy. If you need something, give me a holler.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to share my story. And I hope that it helps with criminal justice reform. For it helps to get somebody to, to stop before they do something stupid. Uh, and I, I do have a paroleable sentence structure.
0: Gotcha. Oh,
2: and I see the parole board. Yeah, I see the parole board in June. I don't know. It's up to them. Sure. I'm just trying to heal and be the best man I can.
0: All right, man. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, okay?
2: All right. You too. God All bless you. Right. Yeah, see you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.
3: The caller has hung up.
0: on the next episode of Voices of a Killer.
2: I just flashed back to Vietnam. (laughs) To me, this guy looked like a VC. He looked like he had black pajamas over his slant eyes. He was taking me to Hanoi Hilton, going to either kill me or...
0: Does he have a vest on? Yes. And you put all four in the vest? I put all four in the vest, and one of them went through it. You're responsible for basically putting a bullet through another police officer's head.
2: I really wasn't thinking about it. I've seen so much of that over bodies, dead bodies, stuff. I just reacted and responded, and away I went. Nothing really ever bothered me until I finally
0: got straight off the acid later that evening. That's a wrap on this episode of Voices of a Killer. I want to thank Reginald for sharing his story with us today. His ability to be open and honest is what makes this podcast so special. If you want to listen to these episodes weeks in advance, you can now do so by joining our Patreon at patreon.com/slash voices of a killer. There you will get access to raw interviews, unseen news coverage, and unique correspondence with the guests of Voices of a Killer. Head over to patreon.com slash voices of a killer to support the podcast. Your support is what keeps us passionate about bringing these stories to you. A big shout out to Sonic Futures, who handled the production, audio editing, music licensing, and promotion of this podcast. If you want to hear more episodes like this one, make sure to visit our website at voicesofakiller.com. There you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and additional information about the podcast. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and reach new listeners. Thank you for your support, and we can't wait to share more stories with you in the future. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Toby, and we'll see you next time on Voices of a Killer.
3: wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere,
0: acast.com. Hey listeners, Toby here. We have a special announcement just for you. Voices of a Killer is launching its very own Patreon page, an exclusive platform that allows you to dive even deeper into the darkest corners of these gripping tales. By becoming a patron, you'll gain access to a wealth of exciting bonus content and behind the scenes exclusives that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Picture this, at our lowest tier, you can have access to further content with exclusive letters, photos, and correspondence that have never been seen by the public before. At our producer tier, you will have the opportunity to engage with the team, participate in Q&A polls, and receive updates on upcoming episodes and developments. This tier is perfect for those who have a keen interest in the production process and want to be a part of shaping the show's future. You'll also have your name read at the end of our latest episodes. How cool. At the next tier, you'll have all this and the opportunity to join in our once in a month video chat Q&A session with me, the host and our production team, allowing you to engage directly with the creators and further satisfy your curiosity. And for our premium tier, you'll have all this and the ability to listen to exclusive unedited raw interviews to really hear the true voices of our podcast. So if you're ready to unlock a world of extra content, head over to patreon.com slash voices of a killer now and choose the tier that best suits your craving for true crime. Your support will not only fuel our passion for storytelling, but also enable us to bring you even more thrilling narratives and the voices that are waiting to be heard on Voices of a Killer.